I'm here today with Farhad Abazov, the CEO of Millennial Lithium, and he's here to tell us a little bit more about his company. Hi Amanda, good to see you and thanks a lot for your time. Um, Millennial Lithium is developing its Argentina Lithium brine projects. Um, we have two projects in Argentina, one is Pastos Grandes, which is our flagship project, and the other one is Couchera East. Um, we've been working on Pastos Grandes for the last year and a half. We've come a long way in that period. We've basically proven a large resource. Um, we've also finished the uh, preliminary economic assessment uh, last year, and we're now in the middle of a bankable feasibility study. Um, we're also doing pilot operations, and we're hoping that this year uh, will be a very important year for us because we'll be ready to actually fund the project and start construction. Excellent. Can you tell me a little bit more about the size and grade of the project and some of the key features of the PEA? Um, the MPV, for example, and the internal rate of return? So look, I mean, it's a brine project, it's a typical brine project, so maybe a little bit about the location. Uh, so it's at a, a 3,800 uh, meter elevation. Um, it is, uh, in, as I said, in Argentina, in the Salta province of Argentina. Um, as the name implies, it is brine. So lithium is contained in the brine, so unlike hard rock deposits, this is actually in brine. So the, uh, we have done a lot of work, as I mentioned, because we've already proven the resource. Uh, which is about 2.1 million tons of measured and indicated category, another 900,000 tons of inferred category. Uh, we're currently actually doing expansion drilling. So in the next few weeks, we're going to come up with uh, updated 43101 uh, resource reports. So uh, we're hoping that it will be a significant increase in the resource size. Um, the brine chemistry is amenable to tradi traditional uh, evaporation processing. So uh, what that implies is that the, you know, the brine chemistry in terms of the um, uh, lithium grade, in terms of other um, elements in, in the brine um, are all there in order to do actually uh, you know, uh, conventional evaporation routes. So we're looking at about 500 ppm for lithium grade on average. Um, um, in terms of other ratios, magnesium to lithium ratio is about 6 to 1. Potash to lithium is about four to one. So these are all um, uh, pretty decent um, you know, ratios. Sulfate um, is about uh, 17 to one. Again, very manageable. Um, how long is your leach process? So, um, so the time that uh, we call it residence time in evaporation ponds is about 12 to 18 months. Um, so um, uh, that is during the production, of course. So right now, as we're doing the pilot operation, so. Um, we're doing it on a much smaller scale, so we're looking at about six months. Um, uh, but when we start producing, obviously we're going to have much larger um, areas for evaporation. Then we're looking for, uh, we're looking at about 12 months um, to actually get the uh, brine to the level when we can start pushing it through the processing plant. Okay, and how much do you intend to produce per year? So currently under the PEA, and uh, we actually continue with the same production scenario uh, in the feasibility study too, we're planning to produce 25,000 tons of lithium carbonate per year, um, based again on traditional method. Um, and um, you know, going back to your question on the PEA, PEA basically took that into consideration, meaning the 25,000 tons a year, um, no potash production will stockpile potash as a byproduct, but will not be really selling it at this point. So um, the economics of the project do not include potash. Uh, benefits, <clears throat> but um, uh, the numbers are very robust. So we're looking at uh, $3,200 $3, of operating costs per ton. Uh, so one of the lowest in the world. 
um, in terms of CapEx requirements is about $410 million. Um, MPV right now is, uh, is about a, over $800 million. Um, and uh, an IRR is about 23, 24%. As, as you know better than, uh, than me, of course, it will be a function of the lithium price at the time when we actually get to, uh, to production, uh, I should say, when we actually start uh, producing the first batch. Um, when we did the PEA, it was uh, early last year. The price of lithium was much higher than today. It was about $15,000, $16,000 per ton, but we used $13,900 per ton um, long-term price. So I think during the, um, when the feasibility study is completed, probably we'll use a lower price. Uh, as you know, the price of lithium has come down. Um, Do you lithium. have a long-term view on the lithium price? I personally um, have a little bit more conservative take on lithium price, primarily because I think uh, there will be um, uh, some supply coming online. So that will affect the price um, in, the, in the short term. Um, so I believe the lithium price, long-term price, uh, will be probably around $10,000, uh, $1,000 per ton. Um, uh, the reason for that is that I think that it will be difficult to fathom the, the, the entire current supply structure if it goes below $10,000 or dramatically below $10,000, primarily because you know, almost half of the world's production comes out of Australia. And if you look at their um, you know, entire chain of production costs, meaning the mining costs, shipping to China, processing costs in China, we're looking at about $8,000 to $10,000 per ton of operating costs or production costs. So I think that will serve as the floor price in the long term because it's not really marginal production. Uh, we're talking about almost 45% of the world's supply coming from Australia. So that gives us um, tremendous um, you know, comfort uh, in terms of our project because we, we think that if we can achieve $3,200 per ton when we're in that range, and even if the price comes down uh, to, let's say, $9,000, $10,000 per ton, we'll still have healthy margins. At $3,200 per ton, where does that put you on the present lithium cost curve? So that's going to be probably the lowest uh, uh, quarter or quartile. So right now, the lowest producer is SQM out of Chile. Uh, they produce at around $2,000 per ton, but they're also a very large potash producer. So in other words, they, they use the same uh, brine to produce both potash and lithium. So when you take all that in consideration, their costs are extremely low. Um, the highest brine producer is in Argentina. Uh, highest cost uh, brine producer, I should say, is in Argentina, and that's Oro Cobre. That is the most recent entrant into the sector, and they produce at around $4,200 per ton. Can you tell me what the steps are or what you're hoping to achieve this year in terms of value creation within the company? Sure. Um, so. We're currently working on a number of uh, technical programs. So maybe I'll, I'll kind of talk about two categories, you know, technical programs and then what we're doing on the corporate side as well. Um, so a few programs are underway. One is feasibility study that I mentioned. Then of course we're doing full pilot operations in order to produce three tons of lithium carbonate per year of battery grade, by, by the way. Um, we just announced, literally I think it was yesterday or this morning, yesterday morning we announced uh, the lab results. We basically took our brine on its raw form without doing anything with it and send it to SGS Labs to actually use the exact same model that we're planning to do uh, to use during the production scenario um, to produce battery grade. And they achieved 99.9% battery grade material. So it's really encouraging um, to see that result. Now, in terms of um, other programs, we're also doing expansion drilling that I mentioned. So the update, uh, updated 43101 will be coming out probably in the next few weeks. Feasibility study will be done in the second quarter of this year. Uh, so that's going to be obviously a major event for us, major milestone. 
Uh, we also finished all the documentation, all the preparatory work for EIA, Environmental Impact Assessment Report, which will be filed with the government in Argentina, in, in Salta province, um, uh, probably in the next few weeks. Um, our expectation is that we'll get all the permits in place by September. Now, when I say permits, we already have a mining permit in place, but in order to start large-scale operation, uh, we need to get a um, construction permit and water permit. So, so that's all in the works, and we expect that to be in place in the third uh, quarter of this year. Um, uh, on the corporate side, uh, we're working on, obviously, CapEx funding, but also uh, on a number of offtake initiatives. So uh, the way we approach offtake Amanda is quite different. We don't want to just sign any offtake. We want to make sure that whoever we sign an offtake with actually can support our efforts right now with financing, be it debt financing or, or equity financing. So we're talking to various groups out of Asia and Europe, mostly linked to either uh, processing plants, lithium processing or autom automotive industry. Whereas we think we can raise substantial capital, both on the debt and equity side, through off-takers alone. So we believe realistically we can get uh, 30 to 40 percent of the entire CapEx requirements of about $410 million through our off-takers. Um, so those are the major initiatives that we're working on. Um, we have engaged uh, Credit Suisse uh, as a lead financial advisor recently, so they're basically spearheading our uh, financing efforts right now. Okay. So if I could just summarize, sure. um, you are intending to build a pilot plant this year. Yes. You're also intending to complete a bankable feasibility study. Correct. You're going to at least secure partial or indications of offtake financing. That's right. Or yeah. part of it. Um, you intend to permit in the third quarter. Um, did I miss anything? No, I think you're right. And then 43101 will be updated, then, uh, you know, basically this quarter. A resource update. That's correct, yes. Um, will it also, so it will probably have an, a slight expansion of the resource, but will it also have a higher degree of certainty to it? Actually, yes, both probably. So what we've noticed, uh, for, for, for sure, it will, it, will, it will increase in total size, but also most of that resource we expect to be in M&I category, um, not an inferred. Um, also, uh, what we've noticed, as we drill to the south of the property, this newly acquired ground, uh, brine chemistry is actually improving in terms of both lithium grade and also uh, impurities ratios. So the lithium grade is increasing, the impurities ratios are decreasing. So, um, the, so the plan is to actually start uh, initial operation uh, in the south, um, and we think that we'll be able to actually draw brine from the southern part for at least first 10-15 years at a much higher um, lithium grade than, let's say, the rest of the property. Um, so, so. So that will be a major, I think, positive impact on overall resource situation. Okay. The bankable feasibility study, is it going to... I know you've mentioned that you intend to stockpile the potash for the time Correct. Being, yes. But do you have... Will part of the feasibility study deal with what you could do longer term with the potash? Um, at this point, Amanda, we haven't really um, uh, instructed the World of Parsons to look into potash situation at all. Uh, because it, it, you know, basically the, the plan is to stockpile it in raw form because if a potash comes out of the evaporation ponds anyways, just maybe to give uh, you a brief kind of uh, overview of how the whole uh, you know, the production scenario will work. So as, you know, as we pump the brine to the surface, we're going to flow the brines into large evaporation ponds. Um, so there are two stages to this evaporation process. The first stage um, will allow salt to precipitate or literally to sink to the bottom of the, of the ponds. And then we take the brine, we pump into the second stage of evaporation ponds. The harvesters go into the dry pond now and get the salt out, and then the next batch of brines come, uh, uh, come into that um, particular pond again. 
Now the second stage, we do the exact same thing with potash. So potash sinks to the bottom of the pond. We take the potash out. So one way or another, we have to remove both salt and potash, as you know, everything else later on. But at the evaporation pond stage, basically those two come out. Um, so potash, obviously salt will be um, you know, put back into, uh, into the uh, salt plains, but, but potash will be stockpiled. So the plan at this one is to stockpile it and uh, see what's going to happen with the regional demand in the next few years so that we can sell regionally. If the potash price actually increases from its current lows, then we might even look into exporting. Now, the reason we're thinking that way is that unlike SQM, which produce obviously at much larger scale, in fact, their main product is potash, not lithium. Lithium is almost a byproduct for SQM. So um, SQM produces two to three million tons of potash per year. That's, uh, that's a good size potash production. In our case, as I mentioned earlier, potash to lithium uh, ratio is about four to one. So for 25,000 tons of lithium production, we're gonna have about 100,000 tons of potash, which in a potash world is not a lot of potash. So hence, we're gonna stockpile it, and let's say when we reach 300, 400, 500,000 ton um, you know, stockpile, then perhaps we can sell it at that point. So that's the plan. In other words, we're not gonna forego that potential you know, value there. Uh, but, but it's not a key part. It's not a key part at all. Yeah, it's, right now, uh, it's not factored into the economics at all. Could you tell me a little bit more about your background and why you think um, you're in a good position to sort of take the company forward? Sure. So, look, um, before I, uh, I joined Millennial as a president and CEO, I was the president and CEO of another potash company called Alana Potash. Uh, it was also a Canadian-listed company with a project in East Africa and Ethiopia. And we took that project basically from the same level of development as Millennial was at, let's say, in early 2017, pre-resource. It was also in the middle of nowhere in terms of, you know, you know, desert, being desert and so forth. And uh, we took it through all the stages of development. Um, you know, the resource definition, the feasibility study, uh, securing of mining permits. And then we positioned for, for construction and then production. We almost got all the funding in place at the time. Um, IFC was a large investor in the company. But then we got an offer uh, from a large Israeli company, Israeli potash company called Israel Chemicals. And we sold the company. At the time, we got a 50% premium on the stock, so it was a good deal, I would believe, at, at the time. Um, before that company, I was involved with another potash company called Potash One. I was a co-founder of that company, which uh, had a project in Saskatchewan in Canada. Um, exact same model. We took it from basically scratch, $30 million company, became $434 million company, and we sold it to a large German potash producer called K Plus S or Cardone Salts. And K plus S, in fact, uh, invested an additional $4.2 billion in that project and built it in late 2017. So they produce about, I think, one and a half million tons. They want to ramp it up to about four million eventually. So it's going to become a large uh, potash producer in the world. Uh, before then, I was involved with a, with a company called Energy Metals. It was a, um, it was a uranium company. Um, TSX listed, actually it was duly listed on TSX and the New York Stock Exchange with most of the projects in, in the Western United States. And we put that project, one of these projects in the U.S. and Texas specifically in production. And within about three months after we started uh, production, we got an offer from a company called Uranium One. And we sold it for one, for 1.8 billion uh, Canadian dollars in 2007. So we're, we're fortunate with the timing, of course. So in terms of, of, of developing an Institute yes. Leach or Brian type project, you've obviously done it before and you have a long history of of selling companies on to larger players in the resources space. Is that something that you're trying to do here? Um, we always develop uh, these projects on, on uh, what we call dual track basis. So 
Um, I, I never uh, intend just to sell the project because, as you know, you may not have that opportunity for one reason or another. So we always take a project that has a very low cost structure because there's no way for a junior company to control or have any impact on the pricing of that particular commodity. So you're absolutely right. If you look at all these three projects that I mentioned, they were all in situ leach one way or another. Even the potash project we added was a solution project, in other words, in, in, in situ. Um, the leach pro project, the uranium project as well, it was ISR in situ uh, leach pro project. The reason for that was very simple. Um, we believe that those are the projects that can survive in, uh, in, a, low, uh, in a low price environment. And um, as you know, for these projects, you need three to five years of development period um, to bring them to the stage where they can go into construction. And if you're hoping for, um, for a speculative play, in other words, just you know, basing all your assumptions on the price of the commodity, it's very difficult to uh, you know, develop a project like this. So you got to make sure that you have a strong economics, um, because if you're you know, caught in a downturn, um, then you're going to be one of those who is going to be able to survive. So in terms of our development, yes, we do have discussions uh, going on now for potential strategic um, uh, deal, but that is not the main thing. The main thing is we want to make sure that we're also uh, in a position to actually fund this project on our own uh, if push comes to shove. Um, do you have any strategic investors at this point in time? Yes, we do. Uh, we do. Um, uh, we, uh, we got a very large investment from uh, one of the largest solar power companies in the world out of China called GCL. Mm -hmm. um, they came in um, in October 2017 with the first uh, investment of $30 million in the company. <clears throat> and uh, they, they basically bought 17% of the company. And then in early 2018, when we raised more capital in Canadian markets, uh, we raised $24 million and they came in again to maintain their 17% um, in the company by investing another $7 million um, in Millennial. So, um, so they're, they're the second largest shareholder after the directors and the management um, in the company, are very supportive. Um, they have two rights in the company, so we're not tied to them in any uh, major way. So it is at this point a passive uh, strategic investor, but very supportive. They have a, uh, a right to appoint a nominated director to the board. So one of the directors out of six is their nominee. And they also have a right to maintain their prorata stake in the company. Are, they are you considering using solar power as part of your power generation? Yes, in fact, that's a good, good question. We're already doing that for pilot operations and all our development um, uh, programs. So we're building a hybrid uh, power plant, solar slash diesel, solar being the primary, diesel being backup. Um, so that is obviously on a small scale. But if it works for us, uh, economically, of course, uh, then we'll try to scale it up. Now, it's not being done by GCL, by the Chinese company, because it's a small project for them and they don't have really uh, resources to do this in Argentina. So it is being done by a local Argentinian outfit, but they have bought quite a bit of uh, solar panels from GCL. So, so, so there's some kind of overlap there. But if there, it really works and if we want to really scale it up, I think GCL will get involved, of course. Um, but frankly, at this point, we're trying to make the entire project as green as possible. So, so that's part of that strategy. And, and, and in the end, it's also economics. I mean, um, we're going to shave off uh, like almost 40, 50% the power cost by using solar. Uh, and, and, you know, it makes perfect sense. We're at 3,800 meter elevation. It's, I think that's 350 days of sunshine. And, uh, you know, not using it. I mean, even, even as you drive up the, you know, to the project, you know, there are a lot of small huts and, you know, villages on the way. Everyone is using solar panels. 
so and the government is quite uh, you know um, you know encouraging this but they, they there are quite a few solar um, solar farms around as well uh, speaking of where you are yeah. it's, it's very remote middle of nowhere, it is yeah right? you said yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, well, how do you think permitting is going to go and are there any issues that you have to combat with permitting yeah uh, that's a great question Amanda uh, you know maybe on, in terms of the middle of nowhere um, the, we are probably nearest project to Salta City, which is the provincial capital. So uh, it's about 230 kilometers. Uh, most of that road is paved, so you can drive up to 120, 130 kilometers per hour, uh, because it's frankly deserted road. It's only basically just for you know for for, for different lithium projects. The rest of the road, uh, probably about I would say um, 100, uh, maybe less than 100 kilometers. Um, is, is a gravel road, but it's a well-maintained wide gravel road, so it's not donkey roads. Uh, you know, you can drive again up to like 90 kilometers per hour. The reason for that is that parts of that gravel road uh, are maintained by FMC, which is another large lithium producer to the south of us, so to transport their product. So hence, it's not just the public um, the funds that go into it, the, you know, the FMC also uh, takes care of it. Um, now, in, in terms of permitting, um, it's a very important question because um, you know, people when they look at Argentina, they immediately uh, look at the macroeconomic situation and so forth. Uh, one thing that I want to, uh, you know, emphasize here is that uh, mining jurisdiction in Argentina resides at a, at a provincial level, just like in Canada, for example. Um, in other words, when you look at different mining projects, you have to really look at what province it's located in. Um, we are in Salta province, and if you look at uh, Fraser Institute's index of mining jurisdictions, you will see that Salta province has ranked at the top for the last probably 10-15 years. Not only in Argentina, not only in Latin America, but worldwide. In Argentina, it's probably number one or number two mining jurisdiction. In Latin America, it's in top three. Um, and that's very important. Um, I, earlier, I, I had an investor meeting and they were asking me about the secondary project, Cauchara East, uh, which is in Jujuy province. They're literally neighboring provinces. Um, we acquired both pro projects at the same time about two years ago. We applied for environmental permits to drill, just to drill, at the same time. In Salta province, we got those permits within two months. In Cauchara East, we got it last November. Um, so that's how different these um, provinces are in terms of permitting environment. So here we do not foresee major uh, issues for two reasons. One is, of course, as I said, the government is very proactive and very supportive of mining, uh, mining uh, industry. But the second thing is the location. Uh, meaning there, there's really nothing to disturb in a major way. There is no agriculture around, there's no industry, there are no populated areas. The nearest village is about 12 kilometers away. Um, we're not going to draw water from any above ground water bodies. Uh, all the water that we need is actually under our own feet there on the project. That's another important thing. Um, and in terms of flora and fauna, there's really nothing there. And that's important. So, I mean, you do see some cacti on the way there, but literally it's, it's a salt environment. And having said that, you know, we, we, we do not have any illusions that it, it will be like done in two, three months. Uh, so the government uh, officials are telling us it will take about six months. We're, you know, we always give ourselves buffers. So we're thinking about eight, nine months uh, from the time of application, which is still, we believe, uh, is a good time frame. And when do you intend to apply? Uh, we are going to uh, basically uh, lodge the application by, by early February. So, so that's why we're, we're aiming for September, October um, of this year. All right. Um, what is it you think that differentiates you from your peers in the lithium space? So uh, look at a few things. First of all, uh, the project itself. We think it's a robust project, um, a large resource, good quality resource, amenable to traditional evaporation route. 
And the reason for that is that there are a lot of companies that do not have the right brand chemistry as they're trying to introduce new technologies. Obviously, that increases the risk of the project. Here, we're not going to reinvent the wheel. We're going to use what has already been out there, proven and known. Um, the second thing is um, you know, the, the team itself. I mentioned my background, but we also have a very strong technical team. Um, uh, it's led by our chief operating officer, Ian Scar. Ian has been in business in lithium business for the last 25 years. Um, he's been based in Salta for the last 11 years, worked on two major lithium brine projects in Salta province as well. So he knows not only lithium projects, but also how to operate in Salta. Um, and we also have very strong um, experts on both the evaporation side and processing sides. Um, Vijay Mehta, for example, worked for FMC for many years, is a, the original design guru who came up with all these uh, evaporation routes and so forth. So, so he knows this thing inside and out. Um, uh, another thing is, of course, uh, the jurisdiction. Now, um, you know, there are some interesting projects in the various parts of the world and South America, uh, but from a regulatory perspective, they're very challenging. So we think that being in Salta gives us tremendous advantage over almost any other competitor. Um, in terms of permitting, et cetera, which we mentioned earlier. Um, and the, the third thing is, you know, uh, you know, the economics of the project. So I think that's the key, to be honest with you, because, you know, the, we have no control, as I mentioned, over the pricing. We don't know how the, uh, the, you know, the supply picture will develop as we go forward. Right now, we see that it's still quite constrained. Um, demand is growing very, very strongly. So we're looking at, uh, you know, probably doubling, potential trebling of demand between now and seven years from now. So I think in that regard, everything is uh, quite positive. But if the price of um, lithium continues sliding, as we've seen uh, last year, then I think only low-cost producers will be able to survive that environment and still um, you know, turn in profit. So that's why I think our uh, project is a really well positioned. And the, lastly is our current cash position. Um, I think we're one of the best funded uh, development companies out there, in, uh, probably in the world, not only in South America. Um, we raised about $70 million in the last year and a half or so. Uh, we've been extremely careful and uh, I would say effective with that money because we still have $45 million in the bank. Um, even after we complete all these programs that I mentioned, meaning feasibility study pilot operations, um, expansion drilling, um, you know, EIA work and all of that, um, we'll still have probably 20, 25 million dollars in the bank, which will allow us to maintain our operations until we raise capital for construction. And that's critical because we raised all that capital at success of a higher price point. We started in, um, uh, in the second, third quarter of 2017, raised 11 and a half million dollars at $1.25. Then literally a month after that, we raised another 30 million dollars at 250, so 100% premium. And then in early 2018, we raised another $31 million at 350. So we kept dilution to the minimum. So I think most of our shareholders should be very happy with that. Um, we have only 82 million shares outstanding. As I mentioned, management and directors have you know, significant skin in the game. <clears throat> we own 20% of the company. So I think uh, that's a very important point too. Our uh, incentives are completely aligned with uh, the uh, interests of our shareholders. Okay, excellent. Thank you, Amanda. Thanks. Thanks a lot. So, Amanda, you met up with Farhad at Millennial Lithium recently. And what are your thoughts on the business and, uh, and Farhad? Millennial and, and Farhad are one of my favorite um, lithium companies. Um, there, there are sort of five standout reasons for that. Um, the first is that it's, it's the scale of the asset. 
the asset has sufficient scale and sufficient grade to actually be relevant. So it could be a standalone company with a reasonable market cap that people would like one day. Um, a lot of projects, while they have great grades, are very interesting, they'll never be of a scale that is, that is relevant to the market. But, but this one definitely is. The second and, and one of the most important points, I think, is, is the fact that it's in the, in the bottom quartile of the cost curve. Lithium as a commodity, everyone's super excited about it because it's, it's going into batteries and all of that sort of thing. But an unknown fact in the world is that lithium actually isn't all that rare. And the lack of rarity of, of lithium in the world means there's lots of projects, but that means that the price can go up and down quite rapidly and that only the lowest cost guys are going to survive in the long run. And so I would only be looking at lithium companies that can produce comfortably in the bottom half of the cost curve and ideally in the bottom quartile. And Millennium does that. The ability to um, make those resources economic is actually quite difficult. Fluid dynamics is a really complicated science and the number of and, and the cost of putting them in can be very, very high or, or fluid dynamic in situ leach projects. Um, this project has a very reasonable COPEX. It's, it's very technically de-risked. So I would say the sort of third most important um, aspect of what I like about Millennial is, is Farhad himself as a CEO. Um, execution is everything. You can have the best project in the world in the mining industry, and if you can't execute it economically on time and on budget, you're done. Farhad has not just done this once before, he's done it three times before. And he's not only executed the development of three very complicated brine projects, he's also exited them um, at an incredible return to shareholders. Alana Potash, I believe, sold at a 50% premium. Um, Potash One um, sold for uh, $434 million. Um, and Energy Metals, previous to that, um, sold at for $1.8 billion. So, so this man has not only successfully developed and executed technically on these projects, which is not an easy feat, he's also executed for shareholders, which when I, in my world is the most important thing. <laughs> the, the fourth, um, I would say most important thing here is that they're fully funded. Um, they are funded all the way through to construction or to a construction decision. And, and at that point they should have 20, $25 million still in the bank. And so not having to come back to the market all the time to, to raise money is, is massively important in, in this market. And also when they do have to fund construction, um, they've, they've got a capex that's eminently fundable. It's, it's very reasonable. It's in the hundreds of millions, not the billions. Um, and they already have a strategic partner that's invested on very good terms in the company, um, that, that'll likely be cornerstone for that. And Farhad's already gone out and is actively talking to the market about offtake contracts, which will make the financing even better. The last thing that I really like is jurisdiction. Um, the desert where this is located doesn't have any sort of nasty environmentals. It's got um, form, as it were. There are a number of projects that have been permitted easily and readily. The likelihood of them running into any issues to get this project to development and, and fully permitted is, is very, very low. And that's always important because you don't want to spend all this money and then find out that something's going to happen. And an experience in the region um, and the type of region you're in matters. And in this particular case, 
Um, there's a number of, of mines that have been permitted all the way through exploration to production on time and on budget. So I think that the jurisdictional risk is very, very low. Personally, Millennial Lithium ticks all of my boxes. It's got excellent management with an excellent track record. It's got a very good economic asset in the bottom quartile of the cost curve. Um, they've got lots of news flow coming that should help the price going forward. And, and last but not least, um, they've got a great profile in, in the market. Um, so that's going to really help them go forward um, and, and let investors actually get a return on their investment. Thanks very much. Thank you very much for watching our video. We do aim to give you informed and intelligent information with which to make your investment decisions. So if you liked what you just saw, please give us a thumbs up. And if you want to see more insightful, in-depth, honest and unbiased interviews, then please click the subscribe button. So thanks again for watching and we look forward to seeing you again soon.